Welcome to the Canine Conservationists Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, a co-founder of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Melissa Houghton about using dogs for pest eradication on a remote World Heritage Island. Melissa Houghton has a keen interest in invasive species management, eradication programs, and biosecurity. She's worked on numerous pest eradication programs on islands around Tasmania, Australia. Most notably, she worked in the sub-Arctic for the Makari Island Pest Eradication Project as a dog handler. At the time, this project was the most ambitious island eradication program in the world, attempting to eradicate mice, rats, and rabbits on an extremely remote World Heritage Island. Since the successful completion of the Makari Island Pest Eradication Project, Melissa has worked with research teams to understand how the island's unique flora and fauna are responding to the removal of these invasive mammals. I'm super excited to get to this interview, but before we get to it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. So for this highlight, we're reading the article titled Methodology and Challenges of a Complex Multi-Species Eradication in the Sub-Antarctic and Immediate Effects of Invasive Species Removal, which was written by Keith Springer and published in 2016 in the New Zealand Journal of Ecology. And this article, as you may guess, pertains to basically the point of our interview today. So to quote from the abstract, vertebrate pest management on Makari Island has removed five vertebrate species since 1988, Weka, cats, rabbits, ship or black rats, and house mice. The latter three were eradicated in a successful combined eradication operation that commenced in 2006 and was declared successful in 2014. Eradication planning for the removal of rabbits, mice, and rats took about five years with implementation another three years. The eradication comprised of a two-phase project with aerial baiting followed by ground hunting using hunters and trained detection dogs to remove surviving rabbits. So the dogs were used after poison baiting because a small number of survivors could be expected, and even a small number of surviving rabbits could result in fast population rebound. Dogs helped navigate the complex terrain and large island to find an additional 13 rabbits post-poisoning. And we're going to talk a lot more about this with Melissa in a moment here. So Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear about this project. Um, Usually I know a little bit more about the projects that my guests have completed, and I'm really excited to genuinely get into this and learn about this project with you because I have not heard of this prior to um, connecting with you. So why don't we start out with a couple of basic questions. I'd love to hear a little bit of your story of how you got into conservation and maybe how you got into dogs um, and how and when those two things came together for you. Yeah, I guess I'd always been interested in, in playing my part in, in assisting in environmental programs. And... Um, I actually saw Macquarie Island from a distance and, and it's part of Tasmania, actually. It's a sub-Antarctic island which is governed by Tasmania. Um, it's one of Australia's two sub-Antarctic islands and it's just an incredible place. So occasionally there's footage of the wildlife, the amazing uh, landscapes of this island and I just thought I've got to go there. But, of course, not everybody can go there. It's a very... Um, remote place and there's a small community that uh, live on the island year-round um, uh, managing a station, but not anyone can go there. So when the eradication program began and they were seeking dog handlers, I, I couldn't believe my eyes because I thought this this I've got a chance to be part of this program. I'd always lived on a property and 
use dogs for, well, invasive species, basically hunting, um, which is we have a few properties like that in Australia. It's quite a common for people who live on properties to use dogs for rabbits or um, cats and detection, things like that. Anyway, so I applied and, and became part of the first team to go down uh, post-baiting of the island uh, with detection dogs. Wow. So was that your first time kind of being hired to do detection dog yeah. work? Wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. I was very, yeah. very lucky. Um, we actually, the, the interesting thing about that program was that people didn't take their own dogs down because it was mm -hmm. a long-running um, it, it would require a few years on the island with dogs to to declare it successful or not. They weren't sure at the time. The dogs were trained by hand uh, by different trainers, and then handlers were hired to manage those dogs. So the people who were trained uh, hired, sorry, as dog handlers, were then trained up into the methods that those those trainers had used for those dogs. So um, there were three dog trainers that trained all those dogs and every year there were 12 or 13 people in the field team and half of them were dog handlers that had two dogs each. So there was 11 dogs and there were mixed species um, that we can talk about later that were, were chosen for, for particular reasons, to, to be mainly also to be able to take different handlers every year because the handlers had to change every year. Gotcha. Why did the handlers have to change every year? Was that just because of permitting or because of handler contracts? Uh, contracts, and it's mm -hmm. e extremely grueling environment uh, down there. Yeah. So um, some some handlers and hunters, because we were paired with hunters, um, each dog handler, um, they did stay down for multiple contracts, no more than mm -hmm. two, but um, at when people first went down, you know, it was, you had a contract that was, you know, just For about year. a year. And, um, yeah, and the handlers changed every year. So the dogs had to be able to cope with that. Yeah, that must have been challenging. Were And are the dogs, were the dogs consistent for you your whole year or did you change between dogs or, um, throughout your season? Yeah. Uh, no, so the dogs were paired up with their handlers by um, the dog trainers basically as to who they thought could be well matched with their personality and the mm -hmm. dog handler skills so i had a um so the team so it was 11 dogs and there were seven springer spaniels four labradors and a terrier and mm -hmm. uh most people had a labrador and a springer spaniel um because the labradors would work more thoroughly but slowly but the springers could cover a lot more ground so they sort of worked in different ways and so we managed two different dogs and the terrier was because Macquarie Island has these unique rock stacks around the coastline that a terrier could be thrown up on basically to search for rabbits or rodents yeah gotcha oh cool yeah so that makes sense then and I love I love kind of thinking about using the different natural hunting styles to yeah, and, and yeah. gosh, I'm not finishing my thought there, but um, I don't think I've heard of a program before where they think that thoroughly about, you know, pairing handlers with two dogs, two different breeds, two different search styles mm. to really, like, it sounds like a really well thought out project. That's very impressive. It was. Um, they, I mean, it was the first I'd been involved in something like this, but I really admire 
there was so much planning had gone into it. I think because it was such a remote, remote island, logistics so difficult, so expensive, you know, many, many years had gone by with um, people reporting decades, basically, on, on these non-native species and the damage they were having. But to do the program was, was very expensive and, and someone had to come up with that money. And coming up with money to, for, to protect an island, which most people will never set foot on, um, you know, it, it required a lot of concerted effort by lots of people to get it up and running. And then then once they had the funding, the planning that went into it was extraordinary, really. The dog trainers that trained the dogs, they had um, a set of um, skills that they had to make sure and that the dogs were up to standard for. And, and a lot of that, they said it was the most difficult they ever had to deal with um, for the kind of dogs they, they trained before because they had to consider things like non-target species, like how do you train a dog not to be interested in seals and penguins when you don't live with seals and penguins and things like that. It was a very difficult program that dogs had to pass in order to be uh, successful to go down there. Um, it was, yeah, so they, they did a fantastic job with them. Um, the first time a lot of those dogs had ever seen penguins or seals was when we arrived on the island with us. And, um, and it just showed how fantastic, how their training, how well they'd been trained because uh, they were, would use... You know, chickens or ducks or any others any other animals they can think of back on mainland Australia to train those dogs not to be interested but they weren't entirely sure until we got there what would happen and actually more often than not just because of the way that penguins and seals are never not coming across or not having any reason to fear humans or dogs the penguins would come up and actually take a munch at the dogs and attack them so some of the dogs were actually quite oh, scared no. of penguins <laughs> which was not what people expected but um yeah it was it was interesting to see that yeah oh my gosh what species of penguins are down there um kind of just trying yeah. to get a, a gauge on like size here oh yeah so there's four species of penguins about four million penguins on this island which is about 129 square kilometers i'm not sure what that is in miles sorry um but uh, yeah, there's four, <laughs> four species of penguins, and there, so there was king penguins, um, and there's rockhopper penguins, the sort of mad-looking ones with the fluffy tails on their head, um, and uh, gentoo penguins, and the other ones are royal penguins, which are only found on Macquarie Island. Yeah, I don't think I'm familiar with the royals. Um, hmm. that, yeah, that's neat. So yeah, quite a quite a variety, and the king penguins can get quite large, right? Yeah, up to, sorry, half a metre yeah, tall. They're, they're very beautiful and um, regal looking, as their name suggests. Uh -huh. So that's a little bit about this ecosystem. Tell us a little bit more about kind of what makes Macaria Island so special. And, you know, what what was the damage? What were some of the damages <laughs> being caused by these invasive species? Like, why was this such an important project? Sure. Um, so... Macquarie Island, like I said earlier, is part of Tasmania, but it had been discovered um, in the 1800s and had been used as a seal hunting ground for seal oil. So it had been leased for sealers um, for a long period of time and they very quickly decimated the seals and they moved on to the penguins. And there's still, to this day, there's big uh, equipment on the beach heritage equipment now that was used to boil up penguins on the beach uh, for their oil. 
when the seals were done. And, you know, so the, there's three types of seal there as well. There's the fur seals, two types, and uh, elephant seals. Um, and while they were there, the sealers brought with them a lot of pests, and some of them were because they wanted them there for company, like cats, and some of them were there because they wanted food, like rabbits. So Macquarie Island was declared a nature reserve, and while managing that island, it was pretty obvious that a lot of these species were having huge impacts on the native flora and fauna. So there's a lot of interesting um, marine mammals and penguins and things, but there's also a lot of native species on the island, invertebrates and plants that are really unique, and heaps of seabirds, other seabirds like albatross and things use the island as it's as a, a refuge and a nesting ground and lots of burrowing seabirds. And so things like cats and rats and rabbits were having huge impacts. Obviously the cats were eating seabirds um, and they were eradicated by the year 2000 with Sumu. They used um, detection dogs and hunters, but it was not the same kind of program as what they were coming to face with at the end where, they, where they'd removed all these other invasive species but they had rats, mice and rabbits in enormous numbers. So were, from monitoring rabbits, there was an estimation of about 150,000 rabbits on the island and there was no way of knowing exactly how many mice and, and rats but their impacts were not only on the, directly on the seabirds but then uh, indirectly on the vegetation, affecting seedling recruitment. A lot of the vegetation on sub-Antarctic islands is very palatable to a herbivore like a rabbit. They've all evolved without herbivores, so they're delicious. There's a, there's a species there which is uh, endemic to the island, the uh, Macquarie Island cabbage, which uh-huh. the sealers used to consume to stave off scurvy. It's like celery. Uh-huh. It's just, um, and they oh, can yeah. grow up to, you know, a metre tall. We've got these huge tussocks. And the rabbits decimated those. Managers on the island had tried to introduce um, control measures. They, they regularly shot rabbits and they tried to introduce control measures like releasing viruses and things. And so they could see when rabbit numbers were down that the vegetation, that there was some um, ability for the vegetation to rebound. And it used to be or could be very lush and and now with the rabbits at these numbers you had landscape-wide destruction and even um, landslips and huge erosion the whole landscapes were just denuded of vegetation Um, so then that affected seabirds because a lot of seabirds there there's a lot of burrowing seabirds and you also had albatross nesting on the there's very steep coastal slopes on Macquarie Island. There's got a plateau on the top and then these very big coastal slopes all the way around. And so very, you know, very quickly the rabbits just had enormous impact. So the pressure came to do something about it because uh, it was managed by this time as a reserve, but also there's a lot of visiting tourist ships that go to the island. So it had other values other than those natural values uh, for those uh, seabirds and marine species that use it as a refuge. But people could see that this incredible place was just not coping, essentially. So by after the rabbits, uh, sorry, after the cats had been eradicated, we only had the rodents and the rabbits left on the island and that instigated, uh, um, you know, the idea to try to remove them. 
But actually, nothing of this size had ever been attempted before. There had been other eradications of rodents around the world that have been shown to be very, very successful on islands for species conservation because rodents can be have so much effect on island species um, that are often not accustomed to such predators. And um, But nothing had been done, not only this remote, but with trying to do three species at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That must have been really challenging. So can you walk us through maybe um, some of the steps that were taken? I understand that there was some aerial baiting that took place mm. and maybe even some of those yeah. unsuccessful earlier things as far as yeah. you, know, you said introducing viruses. And yeah, walk mm. us through, I mean, especially, yeah. you know, I know you were mostly focused on the rabbits, but, you know, the, the mice and the rats has got to be, yeah. that's so challenging. Yeah, that's right. Well, well actually, um for the rabbits, there'd been other diseases released in Australia. Rabbits are an enormous pest in Australia, um, and other diseases had been uh, released in Australia, myxomatosis, um, and had been trialled down there with varying effect. Uh, but then another virus called the rabbit Khaleesi virus was thought not to, to work down there because of the conditions. I think Khaleesi virus likes warm dry conditions, which Macquarie Island is not. Macquarie Island is one of the wettest, windiest places you can think of with perpetual fog. <laughs> so um, myxomatosis had, had had impacts in the past. And then um, but rats and mice, there was no way of controlling them, essentially. And uh, other places, rat eradications have been very successful, but mice are very, very difficult to get rid of. So when the eradication finally kicked off in 2010, the idea was to bait the island in the middle of winter because for the reason that most of the non-target species, such as your seabirds and things, they, they leave the island for the winter and that way there's a lot of birds there that are carrion feeders, like skuas and giant petrels and things. So that way that anything that was baited that was fed upon by, well, there wouldn't be as many non-target species. A lot of them are threatened or protected, or they're all protected, um, that they wouldn't be feeding on those carcasses and you wouldn't have these non-target deaths. So the eradication kicked off with baiting and the baiting occurred in winter and they baited the island twice. And the reason for that was, so it was aerial baiting, sorry, with um, they used GPS along lines to be extremely thorough and they'd worked out a rate of baiting that would meant that that every um, rodent and rabbit would hopefully be exposed to some bait. And the reason they baited twice was because, uh, see, uh, rats, they like to cache bait, so they'll grab a bunch of bait and bring it all back to their burrow and die on a mountain of bait. But that might mean that something like a mouse with a smaller home range of 10 metres or so would then not be exposed to bait. So if you baited the second time, you would capture those that hadn't been exposed for whatever reason the first time. But even knowing that, so that those kind of aerial baiting programs are really successful with rats. Like I said, mice, there, were, there was some concern that it wouldn't be successful for mice. But rabbits were sort of the unknown, and, and rabbits can be a certain percentage of them neophobic or they're not or for whatever reason they won't take the bait. And it was thought that with 150,000 rabbits on the island that maybe you you might have a few thousand that were left over after the bait. And that was the reason that 
following the baiting that, that hunting teams would have to go in and mop that up as fast as possible before they started breeding as rabbits do. So when the eradication kicked off, the baiting started. But in order to bait successfully, they had to have clear conditions. And Macquarie Island's not known for clear conditions. So the weather was so bad, actually, in the first instance that um, they they had to pull their they had to pull the project that year and go back and reassess. And not only did very little baiting actually occur, but they actually had a lot of non-target kills despite the fact that it was winter. So that meant that in the following year when coordinate everybody to go back down, actually employing a team, a mitigation team to go around the island, constantly going around the island, burying carcasses wherever they could find them to reduce the non-target kills. And also what happened in that in that year after the first failure was somebody decided let's let's have a go at releasing Khaleesi virus and see what it does. And the effects of that were dramatic. They've actually killed, um, they think, possibly up to 90% of the rabbits that were there. And uh, that meant that there was all these carcasses around of, onion, of rabbits that were not poisonous to non-target species. And uh, mm-hmm. by the time the baiting occurred, they had a lot less rabbits to deal with. To deal and that with. meant also that when wow. the field team arrived, there was a lot less rabbits on the islands than originally I thought would be left over. Yeah, I was reading in that paper that, you know, they were worried that you said there was, you know, potentially up to 150,000 rabbits. So even if you know, 0.1% survived, you're still looking at potentially yeah. thousands of rabbits. And it's yeah. just, yeah. that's wild to think about. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's yeah, right. you know, it just as soon as spring comes around, then that those numbers yeah. can just rebound so, yeah. so fast. So what yeah. do you know about, you know, we talked a little bit about how challenging the training was for these dogs. Um, and I assume for the handlers as well for you. So tell us hmm. a little bit about kind of the preparation that you and the dog both received for this particular program. So when when we first were employed as dog handlers and we had um, one of the dog trainers particularly, he's very well known in Australia and he trains dogs for all different programs and around the world. He's called Steve Austin. And we went through his dog training program essentially, which is, um, uh, yeah, so we, we all gathered here for about a month, I think it was, of training and we essentially learned how he trains dogs and in his methods. And... Uh, then we also had to do other training and make sure we knew because we had to carry a lot of equipment to use for rabbits as well as the dogs. We had to learn how to train the dogs, how to keep their motivation up. So we had a lot of tools for that. So we had to, we um, we actually collected a lot of rabbits in Tasmania. So we had pelts and we had rabbit pee that we used in pee sticks down the island because even if we didn't see a rabbit for a long time, we had to make sure the dogs were you know, motivated and on point if we did find something. Um, yeah, so essentially it was going through his training program. Do you remember yeah. kind of how long that took or anything that you you were really, uh, anything that it really focused on in particular that you care to share? Yeah, so I, thought, I believe it was a couple of weeks of, of training with him, but he just is amazing he had all the dogs that were there were just fixated on where he he was all the time but um perhaps you're accustomed to these kind of methods but he was really good at um he's you know we only train with the dogs for short periods of time we always stop the training when they're on the high Mm -hmm. and and these kind of things and um 
and we had to also take them out and and make sure that they they were responsive to us so we we worked together as a group but then we also had to um well it was more about training us than the dogs obviously the dogs knew what they were doing but it was about training us to be very clear and 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 we had for every um yeah every dog um action that we wanted we had three so we had um sorry we had hand signals we had a whistle and we had um, our, our voice or a command because mm-hmm. the conditions down there, you it was really really windy, so you might not they might not be able to hear you, for example. Sure. Uh-huh. And so we for every command there was there was multiple ways of making that command. So mm-hmm. yeah, we had a we had a very high pitch whistle and we had the, the hand commands and we had our our actual voice. So yeah, it's yeah I don't I can't think of anything else to say about that. No, that's okay. No, and I was just I was just looking through his website a little bit as you were talking, and he he does oh, yeah. look like I mean the guy for this. How how cool and what an honor mm. to get to learn from under him. Yeah, he's a massive character, Steve Austin. He um he's just so incredible with his dogs, and he cried to leave them there because he he came with oh. us. I was in the first team, so we went down on the boat and we uh-huh. we left them on the island and. And he loves all these dogs. He, he must train so many dogs yeah. and uh, in all sorts of things, but he loves them and they love him. And he's mm-hmm. just, he never raised his voice and always had them, their attention. It's just a, amazing. Yeah, he's a, he's a big character. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. there was two other dog trainers as well that trained um, one, one fellow. So Steve Austin trained the Springers and another fellow trained the Labradors. And then one of the Labradors was trained by another another fellow in New Zealand but they all ended up under Steve Austin's wing for the final leg uh, so yes actually the other dog trainer came to the island at the beginning as well actually his name was Gus Nopers and uh, ex-Dutch SAS I believe or something like that and, and he was very different really wanted to stay out of the limelight and had a really calm beautiful way with his dogs and he trained the Labradors um, again to, they had to pass the same test but he had relatively similar means but just a very different way about him but yeah similar relationship with his dogs as well gotcha yeah so and we've hinted at this a little bit but you know some of these the dangers and the challenges of working in the subarctic i have not been anywhere near that far south before i have been up to the arctic ocean on the other end of the globe and can imagine some of the challenges but yeah tell me tell me about kind of what it was actually like working in these conditions and what some of the things that you had to keep in mind for kind of risk assessment mm. and safety were like yeah well it was just um it's it's one of the windiest places you can possibly go to and it's um it's got a perpetual fog it's very often foggy down there although the conditions are changing like elsewhere in the world um but with the dogs i mean they they lived out in um in 40 gallon drums with their kennels and we all lived in water tank huts out in the field so we go out in the field for 28 days at a time and we'd be paired up with one hunter we'd we'd rotate every two weeks so we always had a different person to work with and different styles and methods and things and um then we go back to station for three days a month and download all our gps tracks and see where we'd gone but uh the the conditions down there so we're living in these field huts um and especially the spring of spaniels, it's always really wet there. So actually it's more dangerous than the Antarctic in the East Antarctic where Australia spends a lot of its time. It's very dry. It's Macquarie Island 
is very wet and windy. So it's not as cold, but it's actually a lot more dangerous because of that wind. You get this wind chill factor and more people have died in Macquarie Island than in the Australian Antarctic um, for that reason. So with the poor dogs, um, like the spring of spaniels, they would just get wet and, and freeze. So they get ice baubles all over them, which, which never actually came out if the conditions were right until you got some sunny days. Um, the Labradors oh, were just wow. built for it. Mm-hmm. Just They were just made for right. that yeah. environment. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the biggest things was, I mean, they had GPS collars on them. So we had a, a GPS tracker for ourselves and then you could see where your dogs were. But you actually often couldn't actually see. So you, you'd be walking and following your track or wherever you want to go, but just using your GPS because it was so foggy. I remember more than once um, putting my GPS in my pocket and walking and then looking ahead and wondering, what is that? And realising I'd just done a circle and come back to the hut <laughs> because it was just so oh, thick sometimes. You just could not, you couldn't see where you were going. Um, so, yeah, we, we lived in, there were water tanks that were modified into huts and we'd, you'd stay there with one other person. So you had an oven next to your head at the bunk um, and you'd have your food under your bunk and you'd have a cold porch area. And then the dogs, they stayed in these 40-gallon drums out in the, out in the elements, basically. Um, but more than once, the dogs would um, come into danger because the, the island, so as I mentioned before, it's got these steep coastal cliffs and then a plateau at the top. And it's, a, it's actually a World Heritage Area for more than its wildlife. It's a World Heritage Area also for its geology because it's got this unique, it's a part of the ocean's mantle that's been pushed up above the sea surface oh, level. Wow. And it's a really crumbly, strange rock. So you could stand on a piece of rock and it would just disintegrate underneath you. And this happened, I had a few near-death experiences, but so did the dogs. And uh, one of the fellow's dogs, he, he went over straight over a cliff and fell he says it was oh 70 God. meters and and fell hit the ground and there was a sort of crater where he landed and and this fellow said i just oh my God. he went down there with his gun we had to carry a lot of equipment we had all this equipment he went down there with his gun thinking he's just going to have to to put him down and he was this huge big lab who actually apparently just got up and shook it all off and was fine <laughs> but um oh i had wow. a bad experience with my yeah it was just there's so many you just Anything, it's a very rough and rugged place and anything could happen. Um, my, my dog Wags, he fell down a sort of hole in this vegetated slope and it the hole fell into a gully that sort of slipped into a river and slipped down and, and he ended up in this pool above a waterfall, which was about a 20-metre drop to the coast, and um, we couldn't get him out. And uh, I, I called other uh hunters were around to try and help and we threw ropes to him he was trying to get out he was so smart with with throwing a rope down there with a a ball on the end he was trying to hold on to it and we try and pull him up this waterfall but in you know we just couldn't get him out and um the same thing we thought we just night was falling we thought we're just going to have to we might have to actually he might not survive this um it's pretty cold down there and in the end um one of the hunters managed by accident to loop a, a rope around his bottom jaw and we pulled him up that way and survived. And because he's a labs, the labs are so tough, he just sort of 
shook his head and brushed it off and kept going. But I was just beside myself because I, I oh my so gosh, genuinely yeah. loved this dog by then. He was my best company down there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, it was some really um, hard times for the, the dogs and people down there. Um, but that's what makes it so special too, you know. Um, my Springer Spaniel, he was the first dog to go home. He went home. It, he had uh, turned out he had really poor knees, so he was the first dog to oh. go home and um, became the poster child of the project. Um, it still mm-hmm. goes around Hobart, Tasmania, being the Macquarie Island um, poster child, poster boy, very nice dog. But lots of dogs. By the end of the program, so I was in the first year of the field team, by the end um, uh, there were seven dogs left. So a lot of dogs ended up going home early with, with problems. It's just really tough on them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine. I mean, I've even just comparing to like wind farms, which as far as conservation dog work is one of the, well, I mean, obviously it depends on where your wind farm is. It can be really challenging terrain, but the wind farm work I've done is, you know, it's in the plains of Nebraska. It's relatively (laughs) safe. And I'm still, I, I can imagine if we were doing that, year round day in day out or you know for months and months at a time like you're gonna have mm. injuries you're gonna have stuff go on oh, and for yeah huge. it's yeah i mean you know generally hopefully it's gonna be you know stuff like torn toenails and yes you know shredded yeah. paw pads and stuff but even those things over time can be really problematic and you know it just takes yeah. a a slip for a for a knee injury or something. It doesn't have to be anything as dramatic as um, as falling oh, know, yeah. seventeen meters. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. yes, it was just a. Um, there, was, there was so many things that could go wrong, and there was no vet on the island. So the the doctor, um, there's always a doctor at the station, but sort of who mm-hmm. was not a dog lover in the year I was there. She just became the person who had to check up on all these dog issues every time. And, uh, you know, a vet came in to, to look at them at, at resupplies and things. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was really, really tough on the animals. They, we worked six days a week um, and we worked night and day, so we did spotlighting and, and things as well. So um, it was they did a lot of miles. And even though our miles were logged, we didn't actually log officially the, the dog miles, but um, they would do easily tens of times as kilometres, as many kilometres as we did on the island. Yeah, no, of course. So we couldn't Gosh. have done the project without them, honestly. Um, yeah. No. Yeah, that sounds so, so intensive. And so the dogs, were the dogs only working on rabbits or were they also searching for the rats and mice? Yeah, so sorry, the, the dogs that were part of that, field team were on the rabbits and um then yeah uh-huh. in the final year basically after that that baiting and the khaleesi was so successful the second time round, when we actually arrived that time round, they said look we think there might be 30 rabbits on the island and that was a big difference to the thousands that they thought might be there and it just seemed just such a huge task but again so well organized so the island was hunt was divided into six hunting blocks and a, a a dog handler and a hunter would take each hunting block for a two-week period and then they'd rotate around. And then uh, at the end of the project, in, so it, it ended up taking, instead of the sort of three or four years of field teams um, being on the island, they thought it ended up taking, sorry, I went there in 2011. It was declared successful in April 2014. And in that final year, they brought down um, 
some rodent detection dogs with their handlers. Uh, they were a lot of them were Kiwis in part of this program because the Kiwis, the New Zealanders, sorry, they um, have great. They use detection dogs a lot, and they have a program there where you can train your own dogs and use them for detection work. So they had some rodent detection detection dog handlers and their dogs flying specifically just for that year to go and check up um, for rodents and mice all over the island. So in when we first arrived, they thought, yeah, 30 rabbits mainly, and I arrived that second time, I think it was July 2011, and then by November of that year, four months later, we'd caught 13 rabbits, and we didn't know it then, but they were the last rabbits found on the island and the last rabbit found on the island the last adult was by my dog wags and then her babies she had four babies they were found shortly afterwards by another dog handler called sandy king from stewart island and they were the last ones so there was only 13 that we got in that year and uh, hats off to the teams that came after that because the teams that came after that they had to keep searching and searching and searching not knowing whether there was any left there. But they often, even in the time I was there, it's a very gruelling work to be looking for something and only do your job well if you've been looking and not found anything. Um, but to be constantly looking and not even... The day that Wags found that rabbit, I'd said to the person in my hut, uh, joking there, I said, I don't even know what a rabbit looks like anymore because you're constantly looking but not finding anything, um, which can be very yeah. demoralising. You have to be very strong in the mind to do that eradication work because it's down to oh, the very last one. Totally. No, I mean, the I especially starting out on any new project, I am always so anxious until my dogs make their first find and to have hmm. so few finds in such a large search area. So how hmm. did you cope with that? Did you carry gimmies for the dogs? How did you kind of help keep their motivation up as well when, you know, they're spending, I would imagine that means yeah. weeks, if not months at a time without finding anything? Oh, that's right. So we had um, collected pelts and pee from mainland Tasmania and they were stored in freezers on station and we'd seal them up but take them with us and then you, you might in the morning go out and, and make a, a field of um, scent or something for the dogs or, or make them find something so you, you'd either trail your pee or you'd set up a pelt somewhere and then you'd use the commands to get them to that spot or however you wanted to play it but just to keep them motivated and interested in in something to be honest though um they, i think some of the dogs went home because they were clearly not motivated anymore it was just so so difficult and particularly like the terrier uh the terrier is very intelligent and the terrier very quickly like we could tell he said there's no rabbits here and <laughs> basically stopped working he's been retrained in rodents and and works in tasmania but um the dogs did struggle with motivation as well uh, despite even using all these games they enjoyed the games but i think a lot of them knew there was no more rabbits <laughs> but that was important because right. when there was actually a rabbit to be found in a needle in a haystack the behavior change was immediate you could tell um, that they were onto something. So when Wags found that rabbit, and and what was interesting about that, the hardest thing about um, the looking for rabbits and 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 seeing their behaviour was that they'd often be be burrowing birds in these old the 
place was riddled with rabbit warrens and holes, but there often be birds in there, and you were never sure if the dog was looking at a bird and whether you should you know, discourage that or not. But actually, in the end, Wags, when he found this rabbit, was in the burrow with a bird um, anyway. So it was, yeah, it was very, very challenging to keep them motivated. And, and you know, at some of them at some point might have looked at a burrowing bird with interest because there was nothing else to look at for them, you know. Mm. Yeah, of course. No, that sounds extraordinarily challenging. And yeah, I can imagine that you would have some dogs kind of lose interest. Canine Conservationist is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including fostering motivation and joy through high placement training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, safety training and assessments of dog teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skyless Ecology, special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. That makes sense then as well, kind of circling back to this dog choice discussion of, you know, really looking at dogs that are very much so bred to be fielding dogs. They're very much so bred to go out there and cover this terrain and look for stuff. Um, Versus, I generally, I handle border collies and they don't tend to kind of enjoy the search for the search's sake the same way that labs and spaniels often do. And I can see... I, I don't think my dogs would be a good fit for this sort of project. This sounds like the sort of thing that right. is a better mm. fit for a dog that kind of naturally has much more of that fielding ability. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, as you said, the terrier with yeah. maybe a little yeah. bit more intelligence, not that, you know, I mean, labs can be extraordinarily <laughs> trainable, but they're yeah. also, in my experience, are a little bit happier to just kind of keep throwing themselves at a task forever and ever. <laughs> yeah, that's um, rather, right. Whether yeah. or not they're having success. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, very <laughs> persistent. But um, yes, and we love no, that about them. Oh yeah, that's that's right. And it was great to have those unique um, attributes in those breeds for the different tasks on the island. Um, the Springers definitely wear themselves out much faster than the Labradors, who are more methodical. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the amount of ground the Springers can cover uh, is just amazing. Um, and one of them particularly. Katie, she found two of those 13. Um, yeah, just just really, if, if, just can cover a lot of ground and if you're, they're very active, so you have to be constantly watching to see what this behaviour change is, whereas a Labrador who moses along, when there's a behaviour change, it's very obvious with the Springer. They're already so quick moving around that you have to be really onto it. But, um, yeah, they were, they were excellent. That's what Steve Austin yeah. mainly uses for all his dogs is uh, Springer Spaniels, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're such amazing little search dogs. Um, mm. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Did anyone have any trouble with kind of with the Springers with in particular with kind of interested in birds? You know, I, I, I know I've heard that from some people struggling a little bit more with kind of bird interest from our Spaniels or was that something that um, didn't yeah. end up being as much of a concern? 
a couple of them were at the outset and then also, you know, in time, just because there might be a bird in a burrow and then there was something to be interested in. So there was a bit of that. And it was just a matter of um, deterrence when they, that occurred. But it was hard because you, you, they always had to be looking. To be honest, you could see a behaviour change if there was a rabbit around. So if they were onto a bird, you know, at the beginning we weren't ever sure exactly what was going on down those burrows. But, um, yeah, it did require some uh, focus from some of the dog handlers on, on keeping those. They just went, they just went hard on the um, training with the pea sticks and the pelts again to try and refocus those dogs. The springers are actually quite um, single-minded, though, um, they are single-minded dogs to the point where, like we were talking about safety before, where somebody said the thing about a springer, if it smelled a, smelled a rabbit, it would just throw itself off a cliff or anything. It had no self-preservation for the, for the task that it was at hand. They were pretty good. Yeah, well, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up here? I've just been feel really fortunate to have gone down to the island part of the eradication, then also to have gone down many times since the eradication has been completed. I went down as a research assistant and now work on invertebrates, looking at uh, their recovery on the island as a sort of indicator of its overall ecosystem trajectory of change, um, improving the entire ecosystem's health. And so we've been going down multiple years and now I can see I remember Keith Springer, who wrote the paper you were talking about at the beginning, he said when we first arrived, we were just amazed by the place. And he, and he said, um, oh, you know, it's nothing but a pretty paddock now. And we couldn't, we couldn't understand what he was talking about because he'd seen what it used to look like. And now I know. And just being part of this success story, it's so incredible. You've got vegetation above your head and the bird life's all coming back. And, and it's returning now to this even more incredibly beautiful place that it once was before humans got there. It's pretty awesome to be part of that. Yeah. How incredible. And uh, yeah, just how special to have gotten to see the kind of before, during and after of an eradication project, because, you know, these invasive species are so impactful and it's so, as you said, it's so easy to look at a place and think it's beautiful and not even realize the impact that invasive species are having on yeah. some of the natural beauty and um, biodiversity and everything. It's, yeah, how how special. That's that's really, really cool that you got to do that. And yeah, I mean, really hats off to the entire team. I wish that I could go shake everyone's hand, you know, how cool yeah. and how much work that was yeah it's just it's really incredible and what field conditions <laughs> my god i see i see now why you only did it uh, you know they only had handlers doing a year at a time that sounds extraordinarily yeah. challenging yeah yeah it was really yeah. it really was it was great yeah i feel very fortunate and um yeah and now they're doing more projects in other sub-antarctic islands based on their success there so that's really good oh that's so good to hear and you know i really hope that's something that um i think the u.s well, I mean, part of the part of it is I think eradication projects are a little bit easier to work on. Not easier, but to have these really discrete areas that you're trying to work on yeah. to actually prevent them yeah. recolonization later on. But yeah. we, I don't see as many eradication efforts um, taking place in the U.S. as I do kind of down down under mm. where you all are. Um, and maybe I'm just not tapped into the right areas, but it's something that I hope to continue to see more of and that's not just because dogs often are part of those projects but obviously that's that's a benefit in my book 
Yeah, I think there's quite a few off the coast of California and down the Mexican islands. There's quite That's a few true. down no, there. That's true. No, you're, to- you're totally right. Yeah, the crazy, the yellow crazy ant projects and a couple others down there have taken place. Um, yeah. So. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, um, all right, Melissa. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming and sharing this story. I learned so much, and I'm I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, and to our listeners at home, I hope that you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. Um, you can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, join our Patreon, or sign up for our course all over at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back in your earbuds next week to tell more stories about conservation detection dogs and continue learning about this incredible field. Thanks and good night. <laughs>